0: was here for Ash Wednesday. <laughs> Two woos. Woo! That was great. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I mean, uh, it made me so nervous. It was my first uh, Ash Wednesday service uh, to actually, I guess, host or to, uh, to officiate, right? And it was just kind of a beautiful thing. It was stunning. Um, the kids who came forward to receive the ash, it was very, uh, I don't know how you say this, you know, like I was trying to get the adults to be serious. I didn't realize that the kids would be so much more serious than the adults. Like when the kids came up, I me mean, like they had this dead look, like, you know, like I'm ready to receive the mark, you know. Like, I mean, it was, it was so serious, you know. I, I uh, had a few kids, actually wanted it on their forehead, not on their hand. I was like, You guys are just way too intense for me. I mean, I'm just warming up to this whole thing, you know. Um, It was beautiful, though. It is the embrace. It is the first day of how we start Lent. Uh, Lent, of course, as we talked about, is the preparation for Easter. And uh, with Advent, we've learned a little bit why we need to prepare for things. We started Advent four years ago. And with Advent, it was kind of a new thing for us here at Grace. And in that process, you know, with all things, we start a little bit slow with it. I'm not really sure about this, I'm not really sure what's going on here, but we learned the the value of preparation, of, uh, if you would, to, you take this one day of Christmas that's so special, and has all this power, and it's it's exciting and magical, but what you do is you begin to take an entire month to prepare yourself for that thing. Um, It's almost like thinking about a meal, right, like you begin to think about this meal, you are so excited to have this food, and the longer you think about it, you begin to you can almost smell it, right? Just in your imagination. Um, you talk about a wedding for some women and uh, some men, also, right? They've been thinking about this day their entire lives, right? They've been thinking about the you know the, the exact way that everything needs to look and the location, you know, the clothes to wear, and so when they actually get there, this moment is so powerful for them because they've been expecting that moment, right? And so with us, the Christian faith, it doesn't hinge on Christmas. The Christian faith hinges on Easter. We are a people who are a little bit uh, odd uh, on the earth because we believe in something. It's called the resurrection. It's the one thing that separates Christianity from all other faiths uh, on the earth. It is the central cornerstone of what makes you a Christian as opposed to being a Jew if you would. There are so many things we believe in that they believe in, but the one thing that separates us from Islam, from uh, from, uh, Judaism, we believe not only in Christ, but the resurrection of Christ. That this is the hope that God promises the world, that we would be able to come back and to overcome death. Now, the problem with Easter is what? What has Easter become for most of us? It's that one day we go to church, right? Yeah, we go to church, we dress up and we go to church, and then we go out to eat with family. That's what Easter is, correct? Um, Or even worse, Easter's that day where, you know, we go to church and they bring helicopters and there's eggs everywhere. I'm just kidding around, okay? If I could take away the eggs from Easter, I would do it. I don't have that kind of power. You know, like, you know, I'm afraid, you know, if I took the eggs away. I mean, what are the eggs even about? No? Okay. Okay. No, that's no. No, that no. I mean, where did the rabbit come from? I mean, what in the world? They don't even lay eggs. I, I mean, it could be like an Easter chicken, right? I mean, that makes sense. Do what? <laughs> Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. It's become so many other things for us, right? Uh, In the same way Christmas has become about presents and gifts and, you know, all these things that have value, but these things are not what it's about, correct? And so for us, the reason that Lent has value is it reminds us what our faith is about. It reminds us what our hope really is, and it reminds us what it is to really be uh, a follower of Jesus. So Lent ties in to one of the biggest storylines in the Scriptures, okay? Uh, if you want to uh, think back to your days in Sunday school when you learned the, the stories of the Old Testament, it ties into the Exodus. Exodus is arguably the biggest theme in all of the Old Testament. Okay? The Exodus, of course, is the story of when Israel is led out of Egypt and across the Red Sea. And so you have this dramatic depiction where the people of, of Israel are trying to, to run across the sea as they're being chased by an army. And as they're being chased by the army, of course, this God moves with such power that he causes the, the, the sea to come in on the army and, of course, to drown them. Now, the reason this is the central theme of the Scriptures is because this is the way God resolved the issue that all man deals with. The issue that all man deals with is this, slavery. In some way, shape, or form, all of man is slave to something. And so in the story of Israel, they were literal slaves to Egypt. And so in this, in this story, they are seeking God for one thing, and that one thing is freedom. And the way that God frees them is he, he gives them a way out in Exodus, an escape. Now, He uses water in this image. Now, this image of water, it doesn't just stay here. You're going to notice there are themes in the Old Testament that if you learn them, they will help you to read and understand the New Testament much better. If you guys remember um, the Book of Revelation series we, uh, we did last year, I taught a little bit about themes and numbers. Okay, to understand that uh, for Jews, numbers have significance. They have their own meaning, right? And so all of these different things are going to combine for you to kind of begin to read the story slightly different than you ever have before. So if you want to fast forward with me to uh, the passage we just read, Oh, we're here in the Gospel of, of Matthew in chapter 3. And what's happening here is we're seeing the baptism of Jesus. But what you don't understand is at this baptism there are multiple things which are kind of meeting in one space. And the first thing let's talk about, let's go ahead and talk about the actual water. What's taking place here? Okay, We see Jesus, he comes to John the Baptist. He's been hearing this message. The entire area has been hearing this message. The preparation, the cleansing to prepare yourself to receive what God is going to do in the Messiah. And so Jesus comes and he gets baptized. Now, there's so much happening here already in Jesus and in John the Baptist, but we don't have time for all that. But a few things I do want you to acknowledge. This, this body of water where he's being baptized is called the Jordan. This is, the Jordan is a very long body of water, and it has an extension called the Jabok. And the Jabok is actually the body of water where Jacob had his famous wrestling with the angel of the Lord. Okay, this is where Jacob became who he would be known as. This is where you see the transformation of Jacob into Israel, where he wrestles with the angel of God, and he finds his, his favor, his blessing. And so we have this, this stream of water that's famous for wrestling, for fighting. It's also the same stream that we see that um, Elijah and Elisha both have done some, some miracles in this water. They've walked across this exact area on dry land. In the Old Testament, God moved and he separated the waters. So these two prophets will walk across it on dry land. Are you seeing a connection to other stories of water and dry land? Yeah? Yeah? Nah, no, just a little bit. Just a little bit, not. Okay. Now. What else is happening here is we also see that this is the same water that Naaman, the Old Testament leper, uh, this is where the leper was cleansed of his sickness, his illness. Again, a sign of a different type of slavery, right? And, of course, this, this image is of what? Of, of sin, correct? And so this body of water has significance. The reason he's being baptized in this water as opposed to any other body of water is very important for us to notice. They're trying to connect dots here. And so the first thing we see is that when Jesus is coming to the water, there is a hearkening back. There is a connecting to the big theme of Exodus, meaning God is going to lead us out of something. And not only that, God is even going to use Jesus himself, and this act of baptism is going to be a symbol of leading them out. Now let's go ahead and talk about baptism. Have you ever wondered why we even baptize? Have you wondered why when you become a Christian, the official act of becoming a Christian historically for the church has been baptism, to take you under the water, or to to put on your head, however, and to signify that you are going to be saved. That you are going to have a, a way out. Are you seeing the connection? You are not only being connected to Christ, you are being connected to the story of who? Of Israel. In the same way that God made a way in the Red Sea, and he led them from captivity into freedom through water, now this symbol is being connected to Jesus, and this symbol is going to be connected to who? To you. And so baptism is a huge theme for us. We have to notice this. And so if we see baptism is showing up. The first thing that we have to notice when we talk about this story of the baptism of Jesus is the water has significance. There's an older story that we're tapping into. There is a, a deeper meaning that we're, we're tapping into. And so we see that Jesus is tapping into the imagery of, of freedom. Now, the next thing at work here is the Spirit of God. If you notice, whenever he comes out of the water, there's a phrase that's used. And it said that the Spirit of God leads him into the desert to be tempted. Now, uh, if you guys notice this morning when you prayed uh, the Lord's Prayer, at the end it prays that God would not lead us into what? Temptation, right? And that comes from this phrase here. We see that the Spirit of God is the one who led Jesus into the desert to be what? Tempted. Now, the desert has meaning for us, okay? When Jesus goes up um, on this mountainside into the desert, he is again stepping into a bigger story. Who else crossed water into a desert? Just, just say it. Go ahead. Israel, right? And so in the same way that Israel crossed through water, and they, they went into a desert, Jesus is crossing through water and He's going to a desert. And in Lent, we are going to celebrate the same type of practice. In Lent, we're going to spend 40 days of self-denial. Meaning it's, it's the closest experience to desert as you can have. When you think of the desert, do you think of uh, opulence and, uh, I guess, water and fruit and food? Shade, right? No, <laughs> you think of lack, right? <laughs> now, what's so beautiful about... The Old Testament story was the promise for Israel was that they would be led out of captivity into the promised land. But they were not led directly into the promised land, were they? They were led from captivity into what? Which I would like to call crap. Fair? Okay, if I promised you guys, you know what? If you guys would come up front and you know do this, that, and the other, when you go outside, I will have a brand new Ferrari for you brand new Ferrari. Quit being practical, all right? You can sell it if you want to after I give it to you, all right? Don't worry about the insurance, okay? And of course, when you walk out, the place where I told you a brand new Ferrari would be, there's a beautiful Pinto waiting for you in in the parking lot, okay? You would be a little bit unhappy with me. You come back and say, okay, you promised Ferrari. Have you seen a Ferrari? Yes, I've seen a Ferrari. You gave me pinto. You promised promised land, meaning overflowing with milk and honey, and you gave me sand. And it was so bad, of course, that in this story, you guys all know the story, they begin to complain. We should go back to Egypt where we were slaves. At least we had water and food. Now, this leading of the Spirit is crucial in the story. Because, see, the people of Israel were not just told to cross the sea. They weren't just told to go into the desert. They were led by a what? By a pillar of... And so we see the symbol of the Spirit of God leading the people into a the desert. And this desert has meaning. And so the next thing I want you guys to see is that we've got the water, we've got the desert and we've got the Spirit who's leading them, but we also have this number, the number 40. They're led into the the desert, if you would, and the the length that Jesus is led into the desert is how long? 40 40 days, right? Now, this is the same length of time that that we saw Moses go up on Mount Sinai, and again, understand all these symbols are crucial. This is the same length of time that... uh, Ezekiel has all sorts of stories that he does. The people of Israel have all sorts of stories about 40s. And what's interesting about 42 is it was 40 years that Israel was in the desert before they went to the promised land. Are you seeing the connections? When you see the number 40, don't think about an amount. 40 is a description. 40 tells you what kind of time this was. It doesn't care about how long it was. It's telling you that this... This time in the desert, it wasn't an accident because 40 is the number of process. It's going to be 40 days for Jesus because there is a process taking place here. It's going to be 40 years for Israel because there's a process taking place. There's going to be 40 days for Moses on the mountain to receive the download of what God is going to do because there's a process where God is transforming this man and his people. And what's also interesting is it was actually 40 years from the death of Jesus until the temple was destroyed. 40 is a crucial, crucial number. And so what's happening in the desert is not just that he's going there. The number 40 is crucial. Because you have to understand this. There is a process of preparation that has to be completed. And so as we tap back into the story of Israel, the one thing that we all have to understand is this. You can free someone from what enslaves them, from what controls them. But if you do not train them how to be free, they will go right back. You get this process, this idea? So in, in prisons, in the last 70 years, there have been a lot of efforts they're trying to make to change the system, because what they were finding was even though we could keep them in this system for so many years, you know, to have justice or to, you know, to, to help them change whatever the idea was for them being incarcerated, the problem was the moment we let them out, if we do not equip them, we don't teach them how to live free of these things, they will end up right back exactly where they were. See, people have to be taught how to be free. Who's ever dealt with an addiction before? Who's you ever spent time ministering to someone or just having a friend or a family member, it is one of the hardest things to do because you can separate them from all of these things that you thought were holding them down. But if you don't teach them how to handle being free, they're just going to go right back. And what you have to understand about the desert was the desert was not an accident. The desert was the, was the, the preparation to handle the promise Man, I'm starting to sound really charismatic this morning. The preparation to handle the promise. A little Stephen Furtick going on there for some of you guys, right? Um, And so what's going on here is this. We have to have the desert because in the desert, it's the only place that we learn what it is to live without the things that control us. The desert is the only place that you will learn what it is to really live without being told how to live. It's the only place that you learn how to control the possibilities of being a free person. Now, Lent is a process. It is a 40-day process of denial. We take 40 days. We follow Jesus into the desert. We take 40 days to pull off of ourselves every single thing that controls us. And in these 40 days, we learn what it is to live without the things that control us. And so for 40 days, we fast the things that we live for. We fast money, success, pleasure, food, comfort. These are the things that really are your masters, but you're just not aware of. See, these are the things we complain about. We complain about how busy we all are, right? We complain about how much of the things we need, how much things we don't have. We complain about all these different things, but the truth is we love them. We don't know how to live without them. Even though there's parts of these things that we cannot stand, we cannot stand the busyness and the rush and the hurry and the wait and the stress and the strain, but we don't know how to live without it. The things in your life that you hate the most often are the things that you hold the tightest to. And so Lent, historically, was a time of fasting. They would fast food and drink, wine, the things that they would enjoy, things that made them feel comfortable. But see, our, the culture's change for us. We're not, we're not exactly enslaved the same way to the same things. And so for us, as we go through Lent, every week in Lent, we're going to have a new focus, a new thing that we are fasting, a new thing that we are kind of trying to lay down with God. And this process is going to be painful for all of us because we don't realize the things that really control us. You don't even realize the things that really direct your life until you have to give them up. And so Lent for us as Christians is the season of time where we learn what really is mastering us, what really controls us. And as we go through 40 days of chipping these things off of us, we actually have our first breath, if you would. It's almost like you begin to take these things off, and you realize what it is to be without those things. And so in Lent, there are two different movements in Lent that take place. There's two different things that God is at work doing in us during Lent. Here's the first thing. The first thing is this. We are going to find our freedom and our identity, through loss. That sounds like a weird concept. You're going to find freedom in loss. There's something about stripping away that is is the most healthy process for how we truly learn what it is to be free. I'm trying to think of a better analogy. I just can't think of one. My second son, my middle child, he loves to be free. Of clothes. He loves it. He hates clothes. Uh, He loves the ability to run around as much as he can naked. And uh, when it's time to put clothes on, he just, he does not like it. He thinks it's, uh, he questions it. Why in the world do we have to wear clothes? Son, you don't question the system, son, you know. Uh, Because see, with him, if you get him dressed as the day goes on, he'll forget about it. He'll forget that he's wearing clothes. The problem is this the problem is in the mornings when you have to change him again. And the moment that he gets that taste of what it is to be free, he does not want to be encumbered anymore by all that junk, right? He realizes how it feels to run around the house full speed. (laughs) And for me to convince him, no, son, see, you really want to put these shoes back on. And, you know, you really want to put this clothes back on. It is a struggle each time. There's something about it where we will forget what it is to be free. We get so numb to what life could be because we are so encumbered by what we have made life to be. And so, Lent, in this season, we just begin to lay everything down. We call it denial. We deny ourselves the things that we would normally indulge in, right? You have indulgence where you kind of take it in, and you have denial where you push it away. And in denial, it is the, the choice. To push away everything else but Christ. Now, if if you're having kind of some problems uh, seeing how this is kind of a, I don't know, a New Testament practice, uh, Philippians three, verse seven. If you guys have your 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 Bibles, Philippians three, verse seven. Here's what it says. These things were my assets. And he just got done listing all the things that his life was about. He was, his life was all about these accomplishments. His life was about success, about education, about these forms of obeying God, about work, and about all these things he had done, all these things that the rest of the world tells him are valuable. He just got done listing them, and the, and the Apostle Paul says, these things were my assets. They were my assets, but I wrote them off as a loss for the sake of Christ. But even beyond that, I consider everything a loss in comparison with the superior value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I have lost everything for him, but what I lost I think of as sewer trash. That's their best attempt to, to translate the word he uses here. This is the most foul word that the Apostle Paul uses in all of his letters. He uses the equivalent of the S word today. Okay, he says everything that I used to value, everything that everyone around me, everything the world told me has value, it is that to me now because of Christ. So that I might gain Christ and be found in him and be found in him. Let's just stop right there. He just laid down lint right there for you. He just explained that the way that he gained Christ was by what? Was by losing everything else that was of value. The way that he gained Christ was by taking everything that the world said, oh, you are so lucky or you've done so well, you're so educated, you're so successful, you're so this, and he took everything the world said was valuable and he stripped it off. And this was the process of gaining Christ so that I might gain Christ and be found in him. In Christ, I have a righteousness that is not my own. And that does not come from the law, but rather from the faithfulness of Christ. Let's just translate that to this meaning it doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from the things that I've done or the things that the world values. It comes from something innate, something in Jesus. It is the righteousness of God that is based on faith. The righteousness that I have comes from knowing Christ. Here's an important part the power of his resurrection. Let's just stop right there. Do you know the power of the resurrection? The answer for most of us is, I don't even know what that even means, right? (laughs) If we're all being honest. Uh, The Christian faith is to be centered on the resurrection. This is what the Christian faith is. This is what the Christian hope is. In the last hundred years, we've made the Christian hope all sorts of different things. But see, the Christian hope for over 2,000 years was that we would be people who are resurrected, The last hundred years in this country, specifically in the States, the Christian hope has become this, that we would not burn in hell forever. Correct? Like, that's become the Christian hope. Now, if you begin to look through the history of the the church, you will not find this language. You go back 75 years, just a little bit before Billy Graham, you will not find this language. This is not things the church was really concerned with. This language started in England and London, and it moved over here, and again, it's a very young thing. Now, this has value. We cannot toss this out. This has value. But we have to remember that we come from a faith rooted in this concept, the resurrection. So much so that when Christians would be buried, there was an a, uh, inscription that they would put on their tombstones. Resurgum. It's Latin. Resurgum. Which means, I shall rise again. And so when you would walk through a, uh, a cemetery, the, the Christian uh, tombstones weren't marked with a cross. They were marked with this Latin phrase, resurgum, resurgum. This person, resurgum, this person shall rise again, and this one shall rise again. This was their, their clinging. This was their, their hope. When the, the first Christians in Rome were being stripped, uh, you know, just torn to shreds by lions and in the Colosseums when they were being burned alive along the streets of Rome. They were not saying, well, I'm burning now. At least I don't burn forever. The songs they were singing was of a new hope, of a new life, that these bodies would be rose again, that even if the lions tore them to shreds, that God was going to restore them whole again. These are the hymns they were singing as they died. This was the reason they had hope to face lions, to face death, was because they believed in a faith. More than just not hurting for eternity, they believed in a full bodily afterlife. I introduced you guys uh, to the creeds. The creeds are the standard norm for how all Christians have measured whether or not you are a Christian. All the way back to, I think it was like 80, 150. Basically, the entire history of the church, we have one standard for whether or not you are a Christian or not. Do you believe these set of ideas? The Apostles' Creed. Now, at the end of the Apostles' Creed, it says, sing the last line. I believe in the resurrection of the body. Of the body. Most of you were taught in the resurrection of the what? The spirit. The resurrection of the spirit. We're gonna float off. I'll fly away. Right? Right? And again, I'm sorry, brother. I'm sorry. The reason this stuff is so important and so powerful because the resurrection is a part of the Christian faith that gives meaning to your life right now. It gives meaning to the feelings you feel in this body. It gives meaning to the, 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 the sin, the, the desires that you wrestle with in this body. It gives meaning to the joys and the pleasures of this body, to taste and sights and smells. You don't even know what it is to be alive without this body. And that's the point. The body isn't to be tossed off. The body is to be valued. The reason that Jesus was resurrected and his body wasn't left in the grave, the reason the spirit of Jesus wasn't resurrected without the body is because the body is not to be left behind. The body has value. See, there's a group of people who claimed to be Christians but who didn't value the body. They called them Gnostics. This is the group the Apostle Paul thought was the ultimate threat to the church. If you begin to read your scriptures, the ones he talks about, those mutilators um, of the body, those are the Gnostics. Those are the ones who thought, the body is fallen, this world is fallen, we're going to leave it all behind. This is the ultimate Christian cult that the church fought against for 300 years. Gnosticism. And this Gnosticism describes what most of us were taught about the afterlife. Spirits without bodies leave the earth behind, and we're just going to fly around like these lights. Beautiful. But see, Jesus came to a river, to the Jordan. And he came to this Jordan. Because it is the same place that the father of the people of God wrestled with God, wrestled here, whose hip was displaced because the body had value, because this struggle that we deal with in this life has value. He came to the waters where the most famous leper in all of the Old Testament was healed. Not his Emotions, not his mind, not his spirit, his physical body was made clean in these waters. And this is the water where Jesus comes to have his physical body baptized. See, Lent is about acknowledging that you will struggle and wrestle with, these, with this thing, this. And so for the next... 40 days, we will wrestle the same way that we saw Jacob wrestle. We will wrestle the same way that we saw Jesus wrestle. if you notice the line we stopped, we stopped reading there on uh, verse 2 of chapter 4 in Matthew, and it said, and after 40 days, it said, what about Jesus? He was what? He was in nirvana. He was in deep meditative state. He was more spiritual than he had ever been. It said What? He was starving. It talks about the what? The body. And so for the next 40 days, we're going to wrestle with the the parts of us that have value, but the parts of us that struggle, the parts of us that we have to deal with and wrestle with. And what's beautiful about this is that most of us were taught to escape the body, escape these things. Because God is found on the outside of these things. See, so your body wants this, and your body wants that, but God is out there. What's beautiful about this, about this is that the story, of, about the story of the baptism of Jesus, about the desert tempting of Jesus, is that we find that God is right in the midst of our struggles. This is where God is to be found, not out there. God is right here. God came and took on body because this is where The spiritual things happen. This is where the God things happen, right here, right here in this life that we live. This is where all the good things are, in the middle of all the bad. And so in this process, there's two things that we're going to find. There's two movements. We're going to find freedom and identity, meaning who we really are through loss, through the stripping away. See, it's in the stripping away, it's in the desert that we're going to learn how to be who God calls to be. Just like Israel had to learn in the desert how to live as free people. We have to learn to be free people, to handle freedom as we hang out in the desert of denial. The other movement, the other thing we're going to see is this. We're going to find hope again. And the reason we're going to find hope is because we're going to face the reasons that we need hope. You see, it's in this place where Jesus realized he's hungry, where Satan tempts Jesus in three different ways, and we'll break those down as we go, but you'll see that he's going to tempt Jesus and going to address Jesus, the weakness of his body, the mortality of his body, meaning we're going to face our weaknesses, our shortcomings, we're going to face sin, and we're going to face death. And see, when you come face to face with death, that's when you see the value of the resurrection. If you live in a world that hides itself, that ignores the fact that your life will come to end, it ignores sin, it ignores the struggle and the weaknesses that you have. If you live in a life of a plastic life that hides these things, you have no value for the resurrection. It's just a day to go to church and just some songs to sing. But if you're someone who realizes how real death is, how real your sin is, how powerless you are by yourself to overcome any of these things, then the resurrection is has all the value in the world. It has all the hope for you. And you will actually realize that it's something that you need. So here's these two things for you guys. During Lent, we will follow Jesus into his mission of self-sacrifice and love for the world as we give up the comforts, meaning as we lay down the things that we live for, we're going to begin to take upon the things that Jesus lived for. So what's going to happen this year is this. I have a few things I want to share with you guys. Each week, throughout the week, we're going to have our practices of denial and of giving. Meaning, throughout the week, we're going to have something we're going to practice on with God. We're going to take something, and we're going to give it up. And then we're going to take something, and we're going to pass it out. We're going to give it to others. And so for this week, the denial this week, it's going to be fluids. Meaning, that sounds terrible, fluids. We're going to drink water and coffee if you brew it at home. Here's the deal. Any, oh, come on. Don't. Come on, don't whine. Come on, don't whine. We're going yeah, bye, Joey. Yeah, bye, Joey. Okay, for one week, okay, we're going to lay down the conveniences, the comforts, okay, the pleasures of the things that we drink, okay? So, you know, if you're someone who loves water, well, awesome. It's great for you, okay? But that means like the Starbucks runs, okay, that's got to stop, the the sodas, uh, (laughs) the energy drinks, just for one week. For one week we're going to deny. We're going to strip it off of us. We're going to take something that we love and we're going to just put it down for one week. And the same concept of, of Paul. We're going to take the things that we love and we're going to cast them aside and we're going to find in less of other things there is more of God. In less of the things there is more of God. This is the common theme for the next 40 days. And, but the give is this. The money you save, okay, the money you save not going to Starbucks. I'm really worried about this. I think I go about four times a week. The money that you would save, okay, by not spending money on sodas, the energy drinks, all these different things. We're going to take that money and we're going to apply it to our big goal. Now, before I talk about that, you think this is silly with with drinks and liquids. You will begin to realize how dependent you are on these silly little things. I need my Dr. Pepper to get through the day. I have three cups of coffee. These are silly, silly little things, right? But you will will throw the biggest baby fits about this. Pastor Devin said, this is silly. I ain't doing this. I have a headache. This is dumb. All of you, okay? You have no idea how dependent you are on such little things. They control us. Wednesday is my favorite day of the week because... Me and Pastor Zach, we start the day off at a coffee shop, and we just talk through all the, I love it, but I love to start my day with the coffee. And a couple times, I haven't been able to start the coffee. I've been late, or I haven't had money for or something happened, and my day was wrecked by not having that coffee. You will find out how much control these things have on you. There's some of you guys with soda issues. Like soda problems. I mean, really, you guys got soda problems. I mean, it's gonna be, this is going to be hard for you, okay? So in this, it's not just, okay, we aren't just giving something up to say, God, I love you so much. We are taking things out of our life to see the effect it has on us. When Israel went into the desert, they realized how much they really needed and leaned upon the Egyptians. They wanted it back. We're not just doing this to give it to God. We're also doing it for ourselves. We are realizing how dependent we are on other things outside of God. Now, again, the idea is this. We get to bring it back. Okay, that's fine. Okay, (laughs) you know, it's okay to need coffee. I'm just saying. But you're going to realize in these little things, you go, if I need coffee this much, what other things do I need? And what you'll begin to see is that your life is held up on these stilts. And you are truly living dependent on all these other things outside of God. It's not that we can't have those things, but you will find out, and this is all of us, not just you know one or two of us. We live dependent on all these other things besides God because it's just easier. It's easier to go back to Egypt. It's always easier. So, at the same time, Every Sunday, we're going to have a goal. We're going to have a goal of something that we are going to follow in the steps of Christ and live self-sacrificially, meaning we're going to do things to help others. And so every week of Lent, we're going to have a goal for the church. for something that we want to do. So for the first week of Lent, here's our goal. We're going to raise $3,500, okay, to give to the Rally Church plant. Next Sunday, Pastor Ryan's going to be here. He's going to be preaching for us. And the goal is this. I want to send them home with at least $3,500, okay? Now, your money from your, you know, your coffee stuff isn't going to pay for all that. If it does, mercy, okay? This week, I want you to be praying. I want you to be praying about a gift on top of your giving already, and I want you to pray about a gift to sow into this church. Now, not every week are we going to do a financial gift, we only have two weeks out of six that are financial goals, okay? But I want you to pray. What gift can you give? I want it to be sacrificial, meaning I want it to hurt a little bit. There's power in the scriptures of giving sacrificially, meaning I know that I could use this on something for me, but I'm going to put it out. There are departments in this church who need that money, $3,500. dollars There are departments in the church who need that badly. There are staff in this church and families in this church who could use that money badly. We could do a fundraiser and you could give me the money, and there's plenty of places to use it in this church. But we are going to stand on some of the the principles of the Scriptures, and every time that we give sacrificially, we step out and we take something that we need and we give it outside, and we say, God, I'm going to trust you to provide what I'm giving up. I know we need that money here, but we're going to sow it somewhere else and believe that you're going to pour back into us because of our sacrifice and our love for others. We're going to put someone else first. So this church plant who's coming here uh, this next Sunday, they are a young church. I think they've only been there for um, about one year now. It's a young church, but it's a passionate church, and I love the vision of it. And so as the pastor comes here next Sunday and he begins to minister to us, I just want you to, again, I want you to pray about this. Hey, not long. Lord. What is there an amount? Is there a stretching, sacrificial gift that you would have me pour into this church? And we're all going to do it, including myself. I want us to hit that goal, and I want us to exceed that. Agreed? All right, let's stand up and get out of here. Father, we just come to you right now. We, uh, as we begin the 40 days of preparation for the resurrection, we ask, Spirit of God, that you be at work. We acknowledge this morning, this is not just a man-made thing. In the same way that your Spirit led Israel in, the same way your Spirit led Christ, we ask that you would lead us. We give you these 40 days, and we ask you to prepare us. Prepare us as people, prepare our families, prepare this church, lead us deeper in you. Father, we believe and we stand on, on the truth that as we give up the things of this world, we will gain more of you. That is our prayer this week, Father. We we want less of this world and we want more of you. Father, we just prayed over our families, over our children, Lord, that we would have families that want less of this world, less of material things, less of the success and the attention of this world. We want less of the approval of men. We want more of you. Just kinda of that sing in a little bit, Father. We, Pray over our families, Lord, less of the world and more of you. We want our lives to be less about us and more about you. Less about us and more about you, Father. We just tap into the prayer of John the Baptist, Father, less that we would become less and you would become more in our lives. That we would become less and you would become more. As we begin to empty out things from our life this week, even the small things, the drinks, ask that you would honor that. We ask well, that every inch of space we make in our lives, we ask that you would fill it. Every void, every every spare inch of room and space in our lives, we ask that you would fill those spaces, that you would take up and consume, that you would be bigger in our lives. Bigger in our lives. And Father, we just uh, we we take this time to acknowledge this challenge Father, we pray Lord, that we I, well, we pray that we would send that that family home Pastor Ryan and Amanda, we would send them back next week with more than enough Father. we thank you, Lord, for exceeding the goal, Lord, next week. And Father, I thank you, that as we sow self-sacrificially, you're going to meet every need in this house. every need in this house. In Jesus name. And the prayer team's going to come on up. If you need prayer for anything uh, this week, if you need prayer for for anything, we want to start your walk with Christ, we want to make sure we start that with you this morning. If you feel like God's been dealing with with you on something, if there's something that you already know, even without Lent, you already know there's something in your life that's been controlling, that has a lot of influence, a lot of grip on you, that it shouldn't, we want to pray with you about that. Father, speak blessing over every family in this house today. Father, continue to conform us and our families, our children, our relationships into the image of Christ.